The following podcast contains explicit language, by which we mean potty talk. It's Monday, May 7th, 2018. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. This past weekend, Sarah Huckabee Sanders, defending CIA nominee Gina Haspel, tweeted, There is no one more qualified to be the first woman to leave the CIA than 30-plus year CIA veteran. Gina Haspel, any Democrat who claims to support women's empowerment and our national security, but opposes her nomination is a total hypocrite. You are bad. You are a bad woman. You are bad at being a woman if you don't support this woman. It is very close to the trope proffered by Secretary of State Madeleine Albright during the campaign. Just remember, there's a special place in hell for women who don't help each other. (laughs) Albright said that line a lot. She's famous for saying it, but she apologized for saying it that time because it was during a campaign stop for Hillary Clinton. The former Secretary of State clarified in a New York Times op-ed culpa a few days later, quote, I absolutely believe what I said, that women should help one another, but this was the wrong context and the wrong time to use that line. I did not mean to argue that women should support a particular candidate based solely on gender. Ah, but still, the sentiment persists. In fact, it has been taken from Albright and attributed to Katie Couric by a victim of this fairly innocuous barb a few years ago at the Golden Globes. You know what, Taylor Swift? You stay away from Michael J. Fox's son. No, you. she needs some me time to learn about herself. The Swifties were not happy, least the titular Swiftie, Swift herself, as CNN's Erin Burnett reported at the time. Taylor was offended by Tina and Amy and told Vanity Fair, quote, you know, Katie Couric is one of my favorite people. She said to me she had heard a quote that she loved that said, there's a special place in hell for women who don't help other women. Here is the problem with that quote, that sentiment, really. It is so obviously flawed that it's almost always used as a cudgel. Now, there's a category of quotes that are kind of photonegatives of the purpose of an aphorism, so the aphorism's supposed to shed light, and these are trotted out almost exclusively to be rebutted. They're not truisms, they're falsisms. Here's a great example of that kind of quote. You ready? There are no second acts in American life. F. Scott Fitzgerald or Thomas Wolfe saying, you can't go home again. And then the story is always some second actor, someone going home again. The hell is for women who don't support other women or you're a hypocrite if you say you like women but don't like this woman, Gina Haspel. Those quotes aren't exactly a straw man or straw woman. What they are is they're put forward by someone who wants their side to win And it is the sort of quote that might resonate with someone who believes in everything the talker is saying, but it has zero chance of ever convincing someone who doesn't. Because you can't really create an abstract sentiment about what a good woman or a good feminist woman will do, and then tell that to women who might consider themselves good women or good feminists. And if that particular woman hearing that doesn't identify her position in that quote, she will never be won over to her position. No one has ever said, well, I'm in this category of feminist. Someone has described what feminists do. Therefore, I must change my position to comport with this overarching definition of the category. In fact, 
The two sentiments are slightly different in interesting ways. Well, first of all, the overall points that they're arguing for are really different. Madeleine Albright's overall point was Hillary Clinton is a better candidate than Trump. And Sarah Sanders' overall point is Haspel's a good candidate to lead the CIA. Let's get past that. Let's also get past the ludicrous nature of Sarah Sanders' tweet. Like, nice feminist you are. You don't even back this lady waterboarder. You go, girl, to a black site. So here is the difference. Sanders was saying that you need to support a specific woman as proof that you support women in general. All right. Starting from the specific, got to support Haspel, and using it as a kind of litmus test uh, for a broader sentiment. Whereas Albright was saying, if you already believe in the broader sentiment, if you are a woman who believes in supporting other women, a specific Example of doing that would be to support Hillary Clinton. So I find it's interesting that Albright was the one to back off when there's a lot more ballast to that thought than Sanders was the one to back off. Of course, Sanders never backed off. In the end, it is clear that the logic of these arguments will have absolutely no bearing on the results. Uh, We know that Hillary Clinton already lost. And let's just watch these Gina Haspel hearings. I'm going to bet she gets confirmed. On the show today, I spiel about another woman, a real woman, a leader, and not just her, but a collection of her pistol-packing sisters. But first, CNN's Jake Tapper has written a new novel. It describes a sexual aberration so shocking. Well, listen. A sexual aberration so shocking that I couldn't mention even the scientific term on television. Okay, to be fair, Tapper's The Hellfire Club does not go into that detail. But that report I just played from one of Jake's forebearers was part of the panic over comic books. And the seduction of the innocent moral panic of the post-war era is part of the novel's backdrop, along with McCarthyism and a bunch of wild ponies on an island. I know it sounds like the most far-flung tale Jake Tapper has ever brought you, but remember, he had Kellyanne Conway on his show yesterday. This episode is brought to you by The Jordan Harbinger Show. You've heard me talk about The Jordan Harbinger Show because it's one of my favorites. He does in-depth interviews with some of the world's most fascinating minds. I can name a few. Barbara Boxer, Anderson Cooper, Michael McFall, the Ukraine or Russia ambassador talking about Ukraine. One I recently listened to was Stanley McChrystal, the general, the former general. And he told uh, an interesting story about revering Robert E. Lee. But then, after having a portrait of him for 40 years, he's a 63-year-old man throwing it in the trash because his wife says, you know, what that picture and that man means to you, it doesn't mean to other people, and you have to understand that. And then in the interview, they got around to the point where McChrystal talked about that interview in Rolling Stone magazine that pretty much ended his career, where I got to the desk of Barack Obama, and it had McChrystal saying unflattering things about the war effort and just how he talked to his wife and how they decided not to be bitter and not to wallow in. He could have taken some shots at the process, the reporter or the president at that point, but he didn't. It was just an overall good interview. It was facilitated by Jordan's excellent interview style. Whether Jordan is conducting an interview or giving advice to a listener, you will find something useful that can apply to your own life in every single episode of The Jordan Harbinger Show. That could mean learning how to ask for advice the right way or discovering a little mindset tweak 
that changes how you see the world. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R, like the first three letters in hard, B-I-N-G-E, as in how you'll want to catch up on all the episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Jake Tapper is the anchor of The Lead with Jake Tapper. He also anchors the Sunday morning show on CNN, State of the Union. And you know, just because that's not enough on one guy's plate, he is now the author of a novel, a crime novel, The Hellfire Club. Hello, Jake. How are you? I'm great. Thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. So what drew you to the form of novels? That is a question. I have a theory because a lot of anchor, news anchors, dabble in this form. Robin uh, McNeil and in fact, Norway's top novelist used to be a TV news anchor. So what was it about the crime novel in you? Well, I, there were a number of things about Washington that I had learned that I thought were interesting. And there are a number of thoughts I had about Washington that I wanted to kind of get off my chest, but I didn't think would be well suited toward nonfiction. Mm-hmm. The last nonfiction book I wrote was a very uh, grueling experience. It was called The Outpost, uh, An Untold Story of American Valor. And it was just a very heart-wrenching story to write, to interview hundreds of soldiers and their families about this one outpost. And I wanted to try something different, emotionally different, using a different part of my brain, fiction instead of nonfiction, using some of these facts and historical information. That's how it all crystallized. Is part of it, and I know you were a writer long before you ever took to the TV, were even asked a question on TV, but was part of it, I'm not sure, but I think a lot of viewers just see the anchor and he dominates the screen or she dominates the screen and it seems like it's a one-person gig. But in fact, it's among the most collaborative, instantly collaborative forms out there in media, so many people in your ear and so many producers, and it's very hard to just have a thought, express that thought exactly as you want to express that. So I'm just wondering if there is something about the solitude of a novel that was just kind of nice for you and that you could do it at your own pace. You're definitely onto something when you say it, there, there was it, it was a relief. It was a relief from my day job, from covering politics in the White House and the presidential campaign and the Trump presidency. It was a relief to be able to go into my own little world. And the book takes place in in 1954 in Washington D.C. So none of the people in today's world were in that world, although there obviously are. are uh, are echoes in certain characters, like Joe McCarthy, for example. And it was uh, it was enjoyable to dive in and have a project that was just my own and seek kind of a relief from the day-to-day world by having this fictitious world. I was also thinking about, of all the periods to set it, why the 50s? And you could set it in many times in American history and have a lot of fun. You could do it pre-antebellum and have conversations about uh, the Missouri Compromise. I mean, there's there's so much <laughs> latitude you could have. But to me, the 50s was is far enough away so that the latitude is there and that it's fun to really delve into a different time and to figure out little details like, oh my God, this is when the first baby monitor was invented. So that's fun. But it's also close enough so that the the parties were basically close to what the parties are now. We weren't talking about wigs and has enough resonances with today that it was both modern and set in the past simultaneously. The 1950s are often ignored in American history, or at least not paid as much attention to as they could because they're sandwiched between World War II, you know, arguably the most important experience of the 20th century, and 
the 60s, you know, a time of great emotional upheaval, assassinations, people demanding equality, the like. So the 50s are kind of in between there. They don't get as much attention. They are in American lore seen as idyllic and serene and benign when in actuality they were a horrendous time just underneath the veneer of the romanticism of Frank Sinatra and Senator John F. Kennedy, there is menace. There are communists infiltrating the government. There is McCarthyism and the Red Scare, the atomic race, people, you know, kids learning how to get under their desks for bomb drills. It's obviously a time of tremendous inequality for women and for minorities. Um, There are bizarre occurrences. The book takes place in early 1954. Real life occurrences during that period. First of all, McCarthy enters the the world, enters the year at the height of his power. By the end of the year, he's been censured by the Senate. Also in early 1954, Puerto Rican separatists, Puerto Rican terrorists burst into the U.S. Capitol and shoot up the House chamber, uh, shooting five members of Congress. There's also the comic book hearings where Estes Kefauver and, and others are actually blaming comic books for juvenile delinquency. So it's a bizarre time maybe even crazier than 2018 in some ways. And that's kind of what I was getting at. But but really the main thing is it's a time with this veneer of romanticism, but uh, under right underneath it is menace. With the three things you just mentioned, one takeaway I had from the book is it, it, if I hadn't known, it wouldn't surprise me that the person who wrote it was had a background in news or trying to seek all sides to a story. Because we're talking about Puerto Rican separatist communists. We're talking about the seduction of the innocent, which is the comic book hearings, and we're talking about the Red Scare. And I think today, the general thought on all of those were one side was almost totally right and one side was almost totally wrong. And in your book, you have plenty of characters giving voice to, well, just to take the comic book scare, which is now seen as just an excessive joke and how innocent we were to think that the innocence would be seduced then. And it was was ludicrous. It was a ludicrous ludicrous, But your main character, even Charlie, your main hero, you know, talks about some of these things in the comic books. And you could see at the time, just like people who were maybe upset about some of the things going on in social media, at the time, it's legitimate. And you give everyone, I guess, a fair or you give these issues kind of a fair hearing in the in the form that someone in the day would think about them. That's funny. It's probably true that that is part of my training uh, as a newsman to try to at least understand what the other side is thinking. Now, that said, I don't both sides the comic book hearings. That's right. <laughs> I, I'm not, you know, it's very clear that I think that this, the seduction of the innocent and blaming uh, comic books for juvenile delinquency is ludicrous and the scholarship is, is shoddy. And I actually bought a copy of Seduction of the Innocent, which isn't easy to get, by the way. It's out of print and it's awful. I mean, it's just atrocious. It's the, the, There's no footnotes. There's no endnotes. There's no scholarship. It's just all <laughs> lame anecdotes. But that said, yeah, I probably always do... As as a newsman and as an author, a fiction author in this case, and probably also just as a pain in the ass dinner guest, uh-huh. I probably am the guy that says, well, to be fair. To be fair. To yes. be fair, such and such, whatever. Everything you're saying, I agree with, but to be fair, <laughs> Kennedy cheated on his wife and uh, the press covered it up. I mean, it's which not, is true, right, which is right, true. Right, right. It's not like there weren't communists. It's not like Al right. wasn't a communist. There were communists. And what uh, Winston Martyr, the uh, the Charlie's father in the book, who's a lot more grizzled and and, uh, and and battle tested than Charlie, who's a little who's a bit naive. What Winston Martyr says is there are communists. It's just that J. Edgar Hoover is finding them. McCarthy isn't finding any of them. 
I mean, the hero of the book is an Eisenhower Republican. Charlie is an Eisenhower Republican. And, and Charlie represents America in 1954. He is, he's been through World War II. He's idealistic. He believes in the essential goodness of, of the American people and the American way of life. He comes to Washington and he gets his eyes open. But, you know, I think if there's any lesson for Republicans in the book to be learned, it's the one I learned while, while reading about McCarthy, which is, and, you know, and obviously there, there's, there's connective tissue between Joe McCarthy, his protege, Roy Cohn, and Roy Cohn's protege, Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not in the book. That's just in life. That's just a fact. But there is a lot about... McCarthyism, although completely different from Trumpism, there's a lot about McCarthyism that is very resonant to, to today. You know, they say history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. And you can't help but hearing a lot of rhyming if you research and read about McCarthyism. And one of the things about McCarthyism that I think is resonant when you talk about common sense uh, Republicans is the Republicans who stood up to McCarthyism in the 50s starting with a woman who has become my hero while doing the research for this book, Senator Margaret Chase Smith, Republican of Maine, the people who stood up to McCarthyism early and said, this is wrong, this is smearing, this, these aren't facts, these are lies, this is embarrassing. Those people survive the era with their reputations and their integrity intact. And the people who try to pretend it's not that big a deal don't survive it. There's, there was a guy, he's mentioned in the book, but he's dead by 1954, uh, Robert Taft, Senate Majority Leader. He ran Mr. For pres- Republican. Mr. Republican. He ran for president in 52. He lost the nomination to Eisenhower, but he went back to the Senate. He was the Senate Majority Leader. He tried to straddle this. He did not take a stand against Joe McCarthy. He tried to straddle it. He would quietly say to reporters, why are you paying attention to him? But at the end of the day, he never took a stand. And then guess what? He suddenly died in 1953, and now his legacy is... He didn't stand up to McCarthy. And you don't, get to, you don't get to write your own legacy. You just have to make the moral choices you make and hope that history judges you accordingly. And that's more of what I think, not that this book is about never McCarthy Republicans, but, but you don't get to write your legacy. You have to stand up for what's morally right when it happens. Right. And in the book, when you uh, are speaking, so Charlie meets all these historical figures and Margaret Chase Smith is one. And she goes on this little jag about, you know, when the first rat pokes his head out of the uh, sewer, you got to hit him with a shovel. You can't expect someone else to do it. I just thought that you were talking about things like when Trumpism shows itself in a crowded field of Republicans, stand up to that. And maybe not the person, but the ugliness that he was saying. Look, I think this is a through line. You know, I I started the book during the Obama years and Joe McCarthy was always a character and Margaret Chase Smith was always a character. So I'm not 100 percent sure of what I wrote before or after the Trump presidency. I think that that part I wrote before. But I'll say this. There are through lines of decency and truth that you find in McCarthyism and you find in Trumpism. And either decency and truth are important to you or they're not. You don't get to pick, well, I like decency and truth when they support what I believe in. Uh, But if somebody who's on my side is indecent or somebody who's on my side is telling lies, it doesn't bother me. I mean, you do get to do it if you want, but it's hypocritical and it's inconsistent. The people who survived the 50s with their reputations intact are the ones who stood up to McCarthy. Do you think we'd be in a better place uh, civically if we were in the days of three networks and everyone pretty much has to pay attention? Because there are moments in the book, Charlie 
pivots off the fact that everyone is paying attention to the comic book hearings to get his message out on a chemical plant. But that was... So what do you think? Do you, I mean, part of the reason that Trump cannot do interviews with you and CBS and the networks is because he has this outlet. He has a million outlets. So what do you think is better in terms of accountability? That's a really good question. I think it's hard to look at the 1950s and conclude that the media was better then. First of all, and I revere Edward R. Murrow, but he did not take on McCarthy in his famous episode of See It Now until the spring of 1954. Margaret Shea Smith took on McCarthy in 1950, four years before. The comic strip Pogo, which is a famous comic strip in the 50s and 60s, that comic strip took on McCarthy in 1953. So Murrow was a little late. Mm-hmm. Um, and the idea that uh, three networks and, and uh, the, the newspapers as they were, that that somehow resulted in, in more aggressive journalism than uh, what we have today, is, it's a myth. It's not true. There are a lot of problems with the media today. I'm certainly not here to say the media is perfect and we always get it right. But the world is more transparent today. And the media is more aggressive today than it was back then. As much as we mythologize newsmen of yore, the truth of the matter is the media covered up for a lot of things in American politics. The media covered up John Kennedy's affairs. Uh, The media might not have been as aggressive as it should have been in the early days of Vietnam. The media maybe uh, should have been more aggressive about McCarthyism on his rise. There's actually, you should go read this book, Mike, you'd love it. There's a 1952 biography of uh, Joe McCarthy by Jack Anderson. Oh, God. That was a, it was a source. You have to get it on uh, at a used bookstore like Abe. Go to abebooks.com. And uh, it'll cost you like five bucks. So he did this biography in 1952, very aggressive, while McCarthy was at the height of his power. And he has a whole chapter in the book about how the media let McCarthy rise, that, the, that we in the media didn't do enough to challenge his lies and smears as he was becoming famous yeah. from 50 and 51 on. And then once he was at the pinnacle of power, then the media turned around, started giving his smears scrutiny, realized he was lying about things started being more aggressive, at which point McCarthy turned around and started calling them all communists. Reading that chapter from the vantage point of today is stunning because you think, oh, my God, we didn't learn anything. We didn't learn anything from McCarthyism. Now, I realize it's a whole, it's like three generations removed from that for today's journalists. But if we've learned anything from, from, from President Trump, it's lies have to be aggressively covered as such from the very beginning and relentlessly addressed. You know, I think the media was slow to that in, 19, in 2015, and I think the media was slow to that in 1950. Jake Tapper, host of The Lead, host of State of the Union, Sunday show on CNN. He also cartoons on that show, and he is the author of The Hellfire Club, a new novel. Thank you, Jake. Thank you. It's a real pleasure. And now the spiel. Oliver North will become the next president of the NRA. North is the former Marine who, while working as a National Security Council staff member, sold arms to the Iranians to fund the Contra rebels in Nicaragua. He was convicted at trial, but it was later turned over on appeal. North himself 
was transformed into sort of a righteous crusader of heroism on the Fox News channel. He was kind of a nonfiction version of, let's say, Charlton Heston. Charlton Heston, past NRA president. And that is why Wayne LaPierre, NRA CEO, tweeted, this is the most exciting news for NRA members since Charlton Heston became president of our association. Yes, from from Charlton Heston to Oliver North, a direct and clear and glorious line. Except for one thing. There were seven presidents of the NRA in between those two guys. And they must all feel like shit right now. I do not presume to speak for the likes of Ron Schmeitz, David Keene, James W. Jim Porter, and Sandra Froman. But I assume they were saying, uh, Wayne, you know, we're, we're still here. We, we follow you on Twitter. And let me just extend my apologies if my reference to James W. Jim Porter was overly familiar, calling him Jim, but that is how his Wikipedia page reads, James W. Jim Porter. I'm only going off of that. It was also on his Wikipedia page that I read that James W. Jim Porter called Obama a, quote, fake president, which when he said it back in 2012, engendered calls for him to resign the presidency of the NRA. But what happened instead was a man expressing the exact same sentiment was elected to be president of a slightly larger organization. So I was trying to do my due diligence on all these past presidents, these past over presidents. There they are, your forgotten men and women or woman. Sandra Froman was the NRA's second female president. First was Marion Hammer, who has since written most of Florida's gun laws, turning it into the gunshine state. So I was researching Sandra Froman, and I came across what I thought was an interesting tidbit. Upon being named NRA president, she was also named ABC's Person of the Week. Now, Person of the Week is this feel-good feature. It's at the end of uh, the Newsweek on ABC, and it's given to a Cub Scout leader who rescues a baby calf from a river, or like a bus driver who rescues a baby calf from a river, or some quirky university researcher who experiments into the buoyancy of baby calves and rivers. But Sandra Froman was ABC's Person of the Week, and this was back in 2004. This wasn't 1974 when the NRA was bipartisan and not seen as toxic. This was 2004. Although I didn't realize how far away we are from even 2004. Here's a quote from that story. Froman has already had a minor misstep. After a school shooting in Minnesota last month, Froman was reported as saying, consideration should be given to any method that might make a school safer, even arming teachers. Froman said her comments were taken out of context. Quote, I never advocated arming teachers as a national policy, and I don't advocate that now, said Froman. Now, I tried to pull the quote from the ABC Person of the Week report, but I could not find the audio anywhere. It was amazing to me that in less than 15 years, one wacky idea can go from seeming like a wacky idea that needs to be walked back to actually the only idea that the NRA is offering to prevent school shootings. But in my search for the audio, I did come across some other interesting content. Here is Froman in 2011. She is speaking to a group of not gun rights, but knife rights activists. Gun enthusiasts have a joke and it goes... How do you win a knife fight? You bring a gun. And that's my answer to the fight. That so I left the clip a little long to allow for the gales of laughter. I don't know. I will say maybe that room was poorly mic'd and we didn't hear the audience falling all over itself. And let me describe the room. They were at a convention 
these were the knife rights people, and this was the knife rights sharper future award breakfast of 2011. The sharper future, you get the point. And that's my answer to the fight that your entire industry is facing from people who don't like knives, don't appreciate them as tools or works of art, and think that we all ought to buy our food already cut up into small pieces. So my answer is bring a gun. And by that, I mean. She means bring a gun. She definitely means bring a gun. She doesn't not mean don't bring a gun. Everywhere this woman goes, she wants you to be able to bring a gun. But she was also saying, you knife people argue for your cute little weapons like we argue for our very dangerous and much more deadly weapons. Anyway, I found out more about Sandra Froman. I went down the Sandra Froman rabbit hole. Uh, which are excellent to take out with, say, a 22. And I came across a profile of her on the NRA site under the rubric Armed and Fabulous. This is where the NRA profiles women, sponsored by Smith & Wesson. I'd like to give you a taste of the editorial tone. This is from Froman's own story. She detailed the time a man was trying to break into her house. She called 911. She didn't have a gun on hand, and she vowed she'd never be in that position again. Not only did she buy a Colt M1911, she learned how to use it. Been waiting ever since for that man to show up at my door again. Kind of glossed over was the fact that 911 came and the guy ran away, so I guess it saved her if she had a gun from killing the guy. I suppose she thinks that would have been the better outcome. But several of the stories on this armed and fabulous site were of scared women, sometimes more than scared women, actually attacked women. They didn't have a gun at the time. Now they have a gun, they feel safer. But another large part of the story they were telling was about using a gun for hunting. And here the claims got a little questionable. Hunters, as individuals and collectively, have a deep root of respect for the animal and a reverence. And then we meet Libby Crotinger, the, uh, she was the star of the Armed and Fabulous episode, A Passion for Conservation, the Libby Crotinger story. I've just always been an animal fanatic. I've, you know, we had dogs and cats as a kid. And I mean, I had a duck and I just have always just loved them and always had a connection with animals. And how does Libby connect to animals today? She and her oil multimillionaire husband travel to Africa and she kills animals. Her first kill was a kudu. And then my second animal was a leopard. And my third was a lion. Oh, that is sweet. So much of the content is clearly made to hook the women's market. It's as if Lifetime TV made gun videos, which would call for some rebranding of Lifetime TV, I suppose. Then we meet armed and fabulous profiley Melanie Pepper. It's in keeping with the theme of empowerment. She, another wealthy woman, gives back how wealthy? Well, there was a picture of her in this video of her being hoisted on a litter by four black, I'm going to say, tribesmen on a safari. But, you know... Melanie Pepper, she reaches out to the underprivileged by getting them to kill animals. Seven years ago, I was involved with Operation Orphans, and I was asked if I could get some women together and come down and take young girls, 12 through 17, out hunting for the first time. My student shot a spike, and she was besides herself. It was wonderful, and that's what... You know, before the word wonderful was said at the end, I was... Maybe thinking there'd be another more sensible word, like a troubling, horrific, scarring. But this is armed and fabulous, and that is not how they look at the world. This is. One of the alternatives to hunting rhino is to dart a rhino. I could give you another alternative. Not darting or hunting a rhino. 
How about leaving the rhino alone? I know we don't have the nice background music for that, but that is an option, right? I guess it's just another culture, and I shouldn't judge. And I suppose we could all find common ground despite our slight differences. I really want to start targeting educational programs for children. Whoa! Isn't that what Charles Whitman said from the clock tower? Okay, I am clearly not of this world. I am neither armed nor fabulous. But congratulations to Oliver North and a remembrance to those NRA presidents who came before him, the men and women who gave their efforts and their time, especially toward the production of gauzy, women-friendly videos that depict the slaughter of more animals than the Lion King, Bambi, and Eric and Don Jr. combined. And that's it for today's show. Pierre Bienname is the Gist's producer, but he's off this week, and there's no real reason to mention that, except he's a nice guy. Mary Wilson is just senior producer. She's working on a novel set during the Teapot Dome scandal, where the excesses of Interior Secretary Albert Bacon resonate with much of the excesses of today. Steve Lichtai is executive producer of Slate Podcast. He's working on a musical set during the time of Silvio Berlusconi to star John Travolta. It's a bit of a Roman a cleft. But it resonates. Oh, does it resonate. We got logistical and engineering help from Danielle Hewitt today. And might I encourage you to subscribe to Slate Plus if you are not a member. Learn more about how many resonant benefits there are of membership at slate.com slash gist plus. The gist, we are binge watching the last season of a multi-year series where Russian agents operating undercover in America as Americans are influencing the decision of American citizens, and the American authorities are unwilling or unable to stop them. This series is called The Lead with Jake Tapper and every other newscast out there. Oopra depra and thanks for listening.